morning and welcome into the show. It is Daniel Wortman coming to you live from the Dreamaginate Sports Studios. 8 a.m. on the East Coast, 6 a.m. out in the mountains. Thanks for everyone watching from wherever you are this morning. Hope you had a great weekend. It was not a good weekend for the folks running the United States Soccer Federation. Meeting in Chicago and uh, finally starting to acknowledge that they're having issues, but um, the not the acknowledgement was really kind of on the level of, uh, you know, Hey, yeah, I know we're having issues. Um, you want to grab ice cream? I mean, it was, it, it, it's still not an admission of the level of issues that anyone paying any sort of attention um, can see. It, it is, it is almost that, you know, aspect of you know the 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 emperor has no clothes and uh, the emperor is the last one to find out it's it's really almost that level uh, of denial publicly they know that there are issues they are paranoid about being authentic with the public um and and that is that is a really big issue. Uh, authenticity is required in order to reach excellence uh, without being real with yourself, without being real uh, with those whom you are, are leading. Um, you cannot, you cannot reach excellence. Um, another aspect is, is this defensiveness. Um, it's like, yes, we got some issues, but, 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 here's here's some things we're doing here's some things we're trying here's some it's 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 really um it's real they've they're getting really bad advice if if they're getting advice at all and and really what you're seeing in in all of this from the weekend the different comments uh that that have come out is that um you know this lack of leadership that I've, that I've talked about on the show, we've discussed with guests on the show. It, it, it is continuing to show up again and again and again. And, uh, and this weekend was no different. Um, real leaders, when they, when they acknowledge that there are problems, they, you've got to be real. You've got to be real with, with the people. You've got to be, um, you've got to own it. And, uh, and we're not seeing that, um, you know, one of, one of the things that came out, uh, is this, this is a quote from Carlos Cordero. Um, and he said, I spent 2018 going to multiple federations around the world. And I was amazed the tiniest little countries in Europe have the most amazing facilities and they bring it all under one roof. They've got administration, which is what we do here, the technical side, medical science, locker rooms, and fields. In a perfect world, that's what we want. Now, the problem, the problem with this mentality, and we've talked about it when we uh, recently, when we did some uh, episodes about creating a connected system of leagues, a, a FIFA compliant structure for all soccer clubs and teams in this country the problem with the mentality of just going around and saying hey uh, you know they're doing x without context creates issues so to back up and kind of give you, if you're not aware, the United States Soccer Federation has been on for the, the last year or so um, this bandwagon of if you're going to work for the Federation, you have to move to and live in Chicago. Now, Chicago is, is not the home of any of U.S. soccer's training centers. Chicago is um, where the day-to-day central you know headquarter operations are based out of um, but the you know the training centers um, that exist for US soccer Southern California um, they've been building one in Kansas City I believe and uh, as well as they've had 
you know, training stuff down in South Florida. Um, this, so this idea has been, you know, something they've been pushing for over a year. Like if you're going to be a, uh, a youth coach, for example, for the, the youth programs, you have to live in Chicago. Now this is a, um, departure from the past, um, policy. The past policy is you live wherever you live and, you know, you come in for meetings, um, but you're out coaching, you're out working, you go to the training centers, etc. Now, what we have to understand is a few things about the context. The context of the time in which we live, this is one piece. Another context is the size, the geographical size of the country. Another piece of the context is the size of the population the density of the population. Where are our training centers? What is the structure and construct of the Federation as it currently stands? And then we have to also take into context the source of the inspiration. So when we're looking at Carlos's comments about, you know, they've got it all under one roof. Let's go to Europe. Let's go to some of these, even these tiniest countries. And what we find is that these countries are the size of states in the United States. They have it all under one roof. They have this. Now, if you want to go apples to apples in terms of context of the source of inspiration, then what we really should be doing to follow that logic is looking at our state associations as local chapters local offices of the federation that means a massive shift in in, um, staffing so it means a probably a a massive shift in terms of the size of the payroll Um, it it also means that um, it requires a shift in the mentality surrounding technology and the role that that can play in, you know, having one nation, one team, one vision, uh, et cetera. Um, but, but with technology and modern travel, you can get around some of these issues that, you know, in the past could have been, Hey, if I'm on one coast and you're on the other, we're, we're never going to be on the same page. That's just not the case in today's world. And, um, you know, so when we look at where we are as a federation and we look at, you know, sources of inspiration, this is an issue where we can, we can, we can contextualize for the U S because the U S is a continent sized country. So when we take into account the size of our country, the population, the population density of our country, when we take into account the source of the inspiration, we take into account the current structure and in construct of the system and the Federation itself. At the very least, we should be looking at, you know, regional training centers based on regions one, two, three, and four that are basically, you know, offices of the United States Soccer Federation with all of the staffing pieces in place in terms of, you know, the medical, the um, the coaching. I mean, if you're going to make a, a, a play for that level Maybe that's where you go first before you even get into a statewide level. But if we're going to go apples to apples on certain pieces of this, it's going to go beyond even just those four regional offices. This gets to the larger point that we are just not being led by the right ideas. And it's it's become really clear we're not being led by the right people. I mean, we have the CEO of Major League Soccer and Soccer United Marketing, the commissioner of Major League Soccer and the CEO of Soccer United Marketing picking who's going to be the CEO or he's at least on the search committee to pick the next 
candidate to be CEO of the United States Soccer Federation. And yet we wonder why we have all these conflicts of interest and lawsuits, etc. It's it's bizarre how out of touch um, due to isolationism that these uh, people are running the United States Soccer Federation. So, um, so much more to get to, but it was just some, that was just one of the pieces that came out of this weekend and the disconnect that we continue to see um, from the leaders of this federation. Our sponsor this half hour is Ductic Brand, D U K T I G Brand.com. If you are uh, in, in search of some coaching journals, notebooks, resources, uh, maybe you're a player, you're trying to figure out how to keep track of your progress day to day. Go to ducticbrand.com and use promo code DWSHOW to get 10% off of your next order at ducticbrand.com. We'll be right back after this. December the 9th. Thanks for uh, thanks for tuning in today. Um, uh, as we mentioned at the top of the show, the United States Soccer Federation held a board meeting uh, in Chicago this past weekend at uh, a, a notoriously uh, swanky and mob connected hotel uh it seems only fitting for uh the things that keep coming out of the 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 federation um kind of ironic kind of funny kind of ridiculously sad um but uh you know looking at that board meeting and some of the things that came out um before we went to break we were talking about some of these issues where uh, those in charge of um, the Federation are making a classic mistake that we're going to copy and paste one size fits all. What we gotta what we gotta do is we gotta look at principles. Yes, let's look at the principles. But then we've got to look at the context. So so the principles, are are one thing that we have to take into account. Another aspect that we have to take into account is how it applies here. Um, so in in, in that um, the the principles at play are getting people on the same page, getting people together. Um, better streamline of leadership, information, distribution, etc. But you also have to take into the context of where that's going to be applied. A continent-sized country 
we need to make sure we're also worrying about who those people are, where they are coming from, and who they are ultimately responsible for. So if they were, um, if that, if they were the, the, um, if they were just in a small area, then it would make some of these things would make sense, but it's not. We're in a large country and these people are coming from all over the place and they're responsible for people all over the place. So do we want them with an ear to the ground? Do we want them out and about and then coming in for, you know, meetings and trainings, etc.? Or do we want every part of their day secluded? Well, we see how that's working now. Not very well. So that's something that makes me really nervous about this policy of bringing everyone to Chicago. We're already getting bad decision-making because everyone's in Chicago with very little perspective. That may not be the best idea on top of all the other aspects of where we are. So when we're, when, when we're taking a look at these different decisions coming out of the Federation, we have to... We have, to, we have to chew on all of those pieces and really, really lock into, okay, hey, we got this principle from Europe, even the tiniest countries in Europe, and yes, they're getting funding from UEFA, and yeah, but, you know, like, what, what can we do? How can we apply some things here? And, and to a, a, a broader point, if we're going to go and start copying principles from Europe, why not copy what the rest of the world's doing? FIFA compliance, promotion, relegation, solidarity payments, training compensation, etc. And again, don't make the same mistake. Use this as an opportunity to learn this lesson about context matters. Don't make the mistake that you can drop the English pyramid here in the U.S. There, there are so many on social media continuing to make this mistake that our country should be a carbon copy in terms of application as England. England is nowhere near the size of this country. And when you look at the UK and you look at the, the Premier League, the English Championship, the English uh, Football Leagues, League One and League Two, and you go, okay, well, they've got 20 teams in their top flight, 24, 24, and 24 in their next three divisions. That's what we've got to do here. You're, you're making huge mistakes here. From travel to regional rivalries to fans being able to travel to matches, we need to we need to rethink the context learn from the principles but rethink the context otherwise we'll be making the same mistakes the federation's making right now ernie stewart carlos cordero all of them are making right now thinking we need to get everybody into one spot and uh and not taking into account all of those other aspects so um anyway it it is it is just I don't know. I don't know the best way to put this, but it is it is a fascinating, um, you know, look when you look at the federation and the choices they're making. Um, it's it's definitely a head scratcher. There's definitely, um, you know, a. <sighs> lack of perception on their part, the Federation's part of the decisions they're making. And, you know, when we are, um, when we're, you know, going through these choices that they're making, you have to take into account like, where the the thought process is behind the decisions being made and um when you are making those decisions and you're looking at what's going on you have to look at the culture you have to look at the context you have to look at all of the things that are going on within the federation we know that the federation has been very dysfunctional at at hq 
headquarters has not been in a good place for a while. There's a bunch of pushback over, um, you know, the CEO search when it was looking more and more like this was going to be a rubber stamp uh, decision for Jay Burhalter to take over as CEO. Uh, the the Glassdoor reviews and other interviews that were were had with media about the state of U.S. soccer, the culture within U.S. soccer, it, it was devastating for the federation. It was an eye opener. But the, the the sad part is, if you were being led well, you would have already known. The real indictment here wasn't the fact that the federation had a culture problem. The real indictment was that the board of directors didn't know or even worse, they did know, but didn't care until they got media pressure. In either case, it is a massive, massive failure of leadership. Time and time again, this board has shown itself to be incapable of doing what's necessary to lead this federation. It's as almost as if they're treating this federation like it's a neighborhood rec league. But we're talking about a federation that is a national governing body dealing with hundreds of millions of dollars a surplus that they can't manage. Looks like they're going to take it, run it from $150 million surplus down to $40 million. Time and time again, we're seeing the leadership is just not there. It's not good enough, and it's time for a change. So um, we'll, we'll see how that rolls, but uh, it's definitely, definitely concerning when you read some of the comments from the board meeting uh, and in series of meetings this weekend in Chicago, um, just just time for change. I, I believe when we look at everything in totality, just just real issues. Joining us on the show now is Chris Petley um, of Tallahassee SC. We uh, had him on uh, a little while back, um, looking at uh, the launch of their first ever season they played in the Gulf Coast Premier League. Chris, welcome to the show. How are you this morning? I'm great. Thanks for having us back again. Uh, it's quite a nice day here in Tallahassee, and I look forward to talking about some soccer. Well, we are glad to have you back on. Um, Chris, uh, you guys went through your first season. I'm sure you learned a lot of lessons uh, in terms of just what you could do, what you could do better, and, and probably gained a lot of ideas as well as experience through this first season. What are some of the things uh, coming out of this first season um, that that you learned that you didn't know or didn't even think about coming into your first season as a club? Well, you know, I think the, the list is just extremely long. Um, a lot of it really is on the the business management side of it all and, and running a club. Um, you know, there, there's lots of things that we're going to be able to, to maybe tweak a little next year to, to save on our bottom line. Um, then th- there's other things that we're going to have to do to improve. Um, you know, when you're running a lower division soccer club, uh, shoestring budget, you know, nonprofit, uh, we are member funded. So it's not like we're uh, similar to a lot of other teams that might have some, some, uh, sponsors or investors. Um, I'm sorry to mean sponsors, but you know, we, we learned everything from how we run our tryout system to where we're buying our, uh, our gear and our materials to the, the amount of food that we're buying, um, getting a better handle on our travel situation. Uh, all of those things I think can add up to, to helping us better allocate resources for the second year. Um, but when it, when it comes to the, the player side of it all, uh, we continue to try to learn on how to, to best take care of our players. That was our number one uh, priority last year is to make them feel uh, special, make sure that they are getting everything that they, they can to, to perform. And I think, we actually did uh, quite quite a heck of a job in comparison to a lot of other teams. We had uh, everything from sports psychologists, trainers at every single practice and game. We had a, a great pregame ritual for our home games. Uh, but we'll continue to look to 
see on how, how we can improve that. Um, and, and we've kind of spent the last two months uh, as a board and as an organization going through last year to see where we can improve. In some of those conversations uh, that, uh, of, you know, kind of doing a rewind and review of, of what you did, what you accomplished in terms of on the field, did, do you feel like your team met your internal expectations? Did they exceed it? Uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm curious as where the thought process was in terms of on the field performance. Did you guys feel like you were going to be competitive, competitive year one? Was that your hope? How did, how did you feel that part turned out? Yeah. You know, I think it was, we, we, we have a joke with our captain, Jacob Schmoker. You know, I, I consistently said in the lead up to last year, we just wanted to compete. Um, and by that, it was it was almost on the opposite side of, of maybe being in games two to one or, or you know, staying in games close. Um, and at the end of the year, he pulled me aside and he said, all you wanted to do was compete. Right. Uh, and he said it sarcastically because I think everything w- exceeded our expectations. Um, you know, we were aware of the of the talent locally here and uh, with our young folks coming out of high school, with the, the college students going away, with the folks from Thomas University. Uh, but we were always just a little concerned with putting them together that fast, starting practice late. Uh, we didn't start until uh, late March. And then, our, you know, we had about six weeks of practice. I don't know if that's a lot or a little, but I think there was always a little bit of concern of getting everyone to mesh well. But w- when we went through our tryout process, we identified, and it may sound cliche, but we identified good people. You know, you start with good people. And then you create this family atmosphere and then everyone gets out there and plays for each other. There's very little ego. And I think once that started gelling, um, coach Bruno and I, we, and and the other coaches, we would say, all right, let's get a player on the team of the week. Okay. Let's get a a goal. And and you just kept setting these benchmarks and exceeding really what we, what we thought. Um, Were we shocked? No, because again, the, the, the talent level is high, but I think we exceeded our expectations last year. Uh, but it's, it's like the game, you know, we, we got a late goal in Hattiesburg that got us a win. We got a, a ball bounce here or there through the year and it could happen to any team. So I think, um, the score lines were awesome, but I, I think the competitiveness that we were able to string together game in and game out was, was really, really awesome. Now, in terms of your game day environment, your game day atmosphere, um, where you guys were playing most of your matches right uh, there in the shadows of Doak Campbell Stadium, uh, the the American football stadium of Florida State University and kind of that college town area, bars, restaurants, um, you know, really, really nice setup for for kind of pregame, postgame, you know, hangout community, build community. Uh, One of the challenges you guys faced, and we discussed this on the show uh, last time you were on, was the fact of, um, you know, setting up a stadium uh, every game day, setting up a field, setting up, you know, locker rooms, etc. Um, how did that part of, you know, prep, prep, uh, preparing for that and, and then executing that, how did that line up with, you know, what you were hoping to achieve in terms of that game day environment for your first season? You know, every conversation I've had for the last three years is always talking out loud about pros and cons. Uh, We had seven home games last year with our league and then some friendlies. We did five at that location, which is the FSU main sports complex. And we did two at the the local big high school uh, football stadium. Um, I will say the, the location at FSU main campus fields was just unbelievable. And the atmosphere... Uh, every home game, we, we drew 600, 650 uh, plus with our high getting into seven was 735. But, you know, like you just hit on the, the toll it takes on our board during the summer when we had probably three, three of our home games had heat advisories. And that's not unlike anywhere else in the South. But when the heat index is over 100, then it was taking us four hours to set up. The game would end. I mean, this is similar all across the, the country, I'm sure in lower division soccer, but we weren't getting home till one thirty-two in the morning at that FSU main sports complex. And, uh, given our move, which I'm sure you're going to get into here to the MPSL, the stadium requirements are actually going to push us to playing all of our games at the, uh, 
Gene Cox Stadium, the local high school stadium. So we, we've been spending a lot of time uh, trying to take advantage of the fact that we, we actually have some 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 months to plan and prepare to come up with how to recreate a lot of that atmosphere that was down there over at this stadium. Whereas last year when we played there, uh, they were really last minute decisions. We were changing at four o'clock for our eight o'clock game. So we're, we're real excited about being able to prepare for the next 148 days before our first home game um, and, and make it really have a sense of place and come up with a festival type atmosphere, whether we're able to uh, bring over some breweries that can pour in the parking lot and have a, a real kind of tailgating atmosphere. We're excited about that opportunity this year. So uh, before we get into that move for NPSL, um, I, I, I'm curious in terms of your fans and uh, in, in building that, you know, 600 plus every home match, uh, what were some of the reactions in the community to the club, the launching of the club, the success of the club, the, uh, the fact that you were getting out uh, really good numbers uh, in your first year? What, what was the reaction around the community surrounding the, the, the team in its first season? Yeah, I think we've been just really embraced. It, it's shocking to me still, um, as my board members know, I would say, okay, we're going to get 75 people out here. Uh, and they kind of still laugh at me, but I'm, I'm a pessimist in, in just the way I react. Um, but to go out even this past weekend and walk around the city and see people wearing our uniforms or uh, a couple weeks ago, I was out at, at a local, you know, like arcade and there was a, a, a kid in there who was wearing our uniform. It was his birthday. And that's the only thing he wanted. I mean, to see how we've already made these steps to become part of the community, which is, which is what our focus has been all along. Um, the ability for them our fans and our members and our community to understand that the, the players on our team are from here. They live here. They work here. They grew up here, went to high school here. I think that's, that's what's important. You know, it was always our goal to whether or not we won or lost for folks to have a good time at our games, for folks to have a relationship with our players one-on-one, -on -one, be able to interact with them and, and, and learn about them and, and help get those players to the next level that they want to to accomplish. So it's been unbelievable. You know, we were at the County commission a couple weeks ago and they wrote a proclamation for us. So to see the way the community has embraced us, it's everything is above and beyond. So there's a little bit of pressure going into year two to make sure that we, uh, you know, we carry that weight on our shoulders to make sure we're representing our city, our County in this area, but that's what we set out to do. And we hope to continue to do it. Before we move on to the, uh, year two and the look ahead to year two, uh, I, I want to ask you uh, a, a couple questions. Uh, and I think the, your answers might give some help, insight, etc., to other aspiring clubs. You guys were an aspiring club looking at playing your first season, you know, you know, less than 12 months ago and uh, not knowing exactly how things were going to play out and, and we're hoping for the best, but you know, you never know. And, you, you've now gotten that first season under your belt and, you know, have already mentioned some lessons you've learned along the way. Curious if you could share a bit of insight in the same way that you learned some things from Dennis Crowley and, and the things he's published uh, over, uh, you know, Stockade and the, the launch of Stockade, et cetera, and, and from other clubs as well. If, if a club or a group of people were saying, hey, we want to we want to start a club of our own, what would be a piece of business operational advice that you would give them? You know, I think the, the number one thing and it's different for us is that. If, if you you need to, we don't make any money off of this, right, I'm not making a dollar off of this, our board of directors, it's all volunteer driven. So I think the number one piece of operational advice is, to, is if that's the route you're going to go, which is what we've decided, is to clearly communicate that. Because I think if, if your city gets behind the vision and your community and they understand that everyone has equal partnership and there's no ego in it, um, I think that that goes a long way to, to helping you achieve success. When everyone has an equal seat at the table, whether it's your board of directors or your volunteers, uh, people make these teams. And, and I don't think that could be underestimated in, in any 
aspect in any city um you know it's the people that build these 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 things and i think you'll find uh, i'm guesstimating but you'll find that the ones that are successful in sustaining and i think that's what we're all trying to accomplish is to be sustainable is the lack of ego and and the the camaraderie that that you need to build if you take care of that piece of it all then your operations and the business side will, will, will probably fall into place because then you're able to have, um, you know, someone to run your, your ticketing, someone to run your merchandise, someone to run your volunteers and everyone is involved because it, it's, it's people powered. It's it, you know, there's a lot of conversation about money and, and that's, it's important, but the people are what matter in, in the, in, in this level of American soccer. Another question along the same lines, if if a club was wanting to start and they wanted to learn some lessons from Tallahassee, you mentioned your attendance numbers. Those are really, really good attendance numbers, even for a club, you know, several years old. The fact that you achieved those in your first year um, are, are outstanding. What would you convey to an aspiring club on on in terms of being able to get people out to your matches to get those kind of numbers what lesson or idea w- would you want to pass along that would help them accomplish something in the along the same lines well you got to give uh, folks a reason to come out uh, on a, on a saturday evening when it's hot you know, in, in your city and relationships are what matter, you know, focusing on a game day experience, putting yourself in the, in the position of walking the shoes of what your fans are going to, are going to experience and, and building those relationships. There's gotta be a reason for them to come out and watch. It can't just be 11 uh, folks out there that are playing a game. You got, you have to connect with your community and, and really spend some time to think about that. You know, what, what is going to motivate them to come out and watch? For us, uh, I really believe it's, again, the, the players and the relationship with, those, with, with our community, the fact that uh, friends and family live here. Um, you know, we have some of our players, our coaches at, at the local academy, so their players want to come watch them and their families want to come watch them and support them. So you, you've got to really think, walk in the shoes of someone who doesn't really necessarily know the sport either. Um, you know, I'm, uh, we're not blind to the fact that probably a, a large percentage of our fans that are out there are not lovers of the game. They're lovers of our city. They're, they're admirers of some of the folks on the field. So you can't, you got to understand that part of it, you know, and don't get lost in the tactics. I mean, this, at the end of the day, it's an entertainment Right. And, and you're competing with lots of other things, especially during the summer when people want to take trips or like I said, here in the south, as you know, it's going to rain every other day. It's going to be just sticky and hot. So you, you really got to connect with with the motivation for for why folks are going to come out. And, and again, for us, it's the, the complete and utter focus on our community. Now, transitioning into kind of uh, year two, uh, the 2020 season that's upcoming here in about five months, um, you guys were, were part of uh, a group of four uh, teams from the Eastern Conference of the Gulf Coast Premier League, the, the league that you played in uh, your first season, to be announced as joining the NPSL in a Gulf South type of conference with uh, Jacksonville, a, a former uh, team of the NASL, um, anchor, anchoring on I-10 on the east, and then New Orleans Jesters, um, the, uh, the the team of uh, you know Kenny Farrell, the uh, chairman of the NPSL, on the west on I-10, uh, with you four being uh, based on that same I-10 corridor. Uh, bookending New Orleans on the west and, and Jacksonville on the east. Um, tell us a little bit about your your thought process of why that move and why now? Why did that make sense for you guys uh, in your second season with Tallahassee to, to shift to the NPSL? And how's, how do you think that's going to help build your club for the future? 
Yeah, you know, and, and I've been completely transparent. And I appreciate the the conversation here. You know, it, we always really imagined us making a jump to the NPSL in, in maybe three, three, four years um, before we joined the Gulf Coast Premier League. Um, I love the Gulf Coast Premier League. What Jonathan and those folks have built, uh, I'm a huge fan, and I continue to be, and, and, and I hope that um, I'll continue to offer any suggestions and advice uh, to those folks. But I think what it came down to, uh, honestly, was just what all lower division soccer clubs have to deal with, and it's travel. You know, we we are in a geographical island in Tallahassee. We've got three-hour radius before you find any other large metropolitan area, especially one that can sustain a lower division soccer club. So when the the rumblings and the conversations began about uh, – our, our folks, our friends over there at Port City and Mobile and Pensacola making the jump, it really left us, if we stayed, and this was our belief, in the Gulf Coast Premier League, then we would be making a trip to New Orleans three times. And, you know, financially, I just didn't think that we were going to be able to sustain that um, because that adds a uh, hotel stay. I mean, it just adds a ton more for us to have to figure out. Um, now, I know that those clubs, and, and I'm not speaking for, for them, we have great relationships with them. Uh, I know some of them are, are committed to fielding a team still in the Gulf Coast Premier League, but you know we, we felt we just couldn't operate at that. Um, so we had to go where the teams were, um, and, and that's kind of what the driving force was, but we also made sure that we put it to a vote w- with our membership. Uh, we won't we will not make a decision without getting their input and and their input was overwhelmingly to go to the MPSL. Um, they understand as we do, um, that, that this is an opportunity. So while the, the travel may have forced our hand a little bit, um, it is a, a huge opportunity to be on, uh, in the same league with, with so many historic clubs, like some, like you, you just mentioned with the Armada and the jesters. Um, but I think that may, you know, change a little bit of our messaging. Um, whereas I think we were all very competitive in the Gulf Coast Premier League. And like I said, a ball could have bounced either way. Um, you know, that will remain with, with maybe our four clubs. But I think the messaging changes a little. Like you said, the Armada is a giant club funded by a lot of money and, and everything that Robert Palmer's doing over there, which is amazing. And then, you know, you're going up against the Jesters who've been around for however many years. And, and you know, their club president's the CEO of the, the entire league or the chair. So it changes the messaging a little bit to where, you know, we become more of a, a minnow um, in, in, in some of those. Um, and it's different. The Gulf Coast Premier League, and I said this to all these other teams, this is no surprise to anyone listening. You know, I really enjoyed the Gulf Coast Premier League and that there was a clear path to success. There were 19 teams, you had regions, you can make playoffs, you get to a title, um, you know, and, and so we're concerned a little bit moving into the NPSL, both being able to compete with these historic teams, but also for our fan base. Um, you're now one of 105, uh, and, and it, while that brings a lot of opportunities to um, legitimize your club and to, to raise the profile, um, you know, it's, it's, it's going to be a challenge for us, and we're, we're up to the challenge to try to see if we can compete um, with these other historic teams, but we'll, we will be doing it with our local talent. We're following the, uh, Minneapolis city approach. Um, you know, we are not going to be recruiting internationally or nationally. We're not going to be housing players. Uh, we started this thing to highlight the talent in our area and whether that means win or lose, that's who we're bringing to the table. We're bringing our guys and we're up for the challenge. So in terms of uh, joining the new league, what, what do you think the, uh, the reaction will be in terms of now, you know, having a team like Jacksonville as an opponent, um, a, another Florida team to compete with, uh, in addition to Pensacola, um, you know, what do you think the talk will be come spring about having the, the home and home with Jacksonville as part of, you know, your normal regular season play? Is that something that you're really excited about? Do you have your members been really excited about that prospect, a former NESL team with still 
you know, announce professional ambitions playing, uh, you know, right now in the same league as Tallahassee? I think, you know, already we've heard our players are excited. Our fans are excited. Um, you're, you're playing against a, a legitimate, not that these other teams weren't, but a legitimate big, big club. And uh, even the future possibilities, as I continue to read in their local paper about, you know, them building a soccer specific stadium in downtown Jacksonville, that, that's just an unbelievable opportunity for our players. And I think that goes to the core of what we're trying to do, provide experiences for our players uh, to have opportunities like that, to go up against pro players, you know, and in an atmosphere that may be different um, than what they've ever experienced. But I also think logistically, right, you switch the business hat on, um, being able to drive two and a half hours from Tallahassee, that, that offers another close home game for our fans. And, you know, make being able to make a weekend of it to, to maybe go to the beach and then watch our game, There, there's already a lot of talk about that. They're excited about being able to drive over to Jacksonville um, and experience everything that goes on over there uh, and, and check out our team on the away. So we've got a little bit closer now with Jacksonville and Pensacola. Uh, saves us a little bit on the mileage. And then looking to the West, you're uh, a little bit further than uh, than the Port City match going all the way into New Orleans proper for the Jesters. Um, but, you know, New Orleans is an animal unto itself, an experience, definitely a, a weekend-worthy uh, experience. Uh, well, we're trying to figure out who to lobby to get that as our last game of the year. I don't know how we make that happen, but we'd love for that to happen. Well, um, I, I would, I would think that Kenny and Nathan, uh, uh, of, of New Orleans and Jacksonville respectively might be two, two of your first phone calls to, uh, to, to see if you can, uh, to, to get that worked out. Um, New Orleans is a, is a great city to go and, and visit, hang out, have a weekend. Um, uh, and so that, you know, it, if you're going to go and you're going to go that far being your farthest game in the, in the. Uh, regular season um not a bad place uh to go and spend a weekend uh in new orleans for sure um and and i'm sure your players would love that Uh, obviously taking that piece into account this is going to be something you're getting a little bit of a trade-off in that you've got jacksonville right there to the east uh and you mentioned the excitement you mentioned uh you know the the idea of making a weekend of it uh, etc and then you know having pensacola two florida teams now instead of just one to play against uh right there along uh, i-10 now you've added new orleans a little bit farther west than you were last year. So in terms of travel, maybe a little bit farther, a little bit longer with with Hattiesburg, maybe. You well, know. That, and, and that's the way we, we've kind of looked at it, right, is you've traded off the trip to Foley for Jacksonville and traded off the trip to Hattiesburg for New Orleans. So when you, when you look at that from a planning standpoint, um, is that going to increase operating budget requirements? Is it is it going to have you know any effect on your operating budgets? Is it going to kind of remain neutral when you guys do some forecasting there uh, from the outside? It makes complete sense if you're going to if you're the NPSL um, and and this is that this is something that that I've talked to several, including Kenny, about before, which is why have you guys n- never created an I ten league? Um, you know, it, it was always trying to have New Orleans paired up against Atlanta and Chattanooga and others. And I was like, that, that just doesn't make any logistical sense to me. They, they finally gone out, found four teams to kind of fill the gap between Jacksonville and New Orleans to create this I-10 league. Uh, from a planning standpoint, for, for your sake, do you feel like this is going to um, require more operating money to, to play in terms of travel? Or do you think it's going to kind of remain neutral based off of the footprint you uh, you played in last year with the GCPL? Well, it's, it's, it's a tricky answer because, again, we're taking some of the lessons we learned last year. Um, you know, with our travel, we did a combination of, uh, like everyone else, we did the vans, but for three of our games, we, we actually chartered out a, a bus. Um, so our travel was higher than we even anticipated last year for various reasoning. Um, but we, we hope to really focus in on just using those enterprise or budget or whatever company, 
I'm not trying to be partial to anyone, um, van, rental vans for the travel this year. So that'll decrease some of that cost. But conversely, we fully anticipate overnighting in New Orleans. And we didn't overnight uh, anywhere last year except for our uh, playoff stint when we went out to Lafayette. Um, so we know that the the increase, which is probably you know $1,200 to, to put our team up in a hotel overnight, um, but we hope that we can balance that out by not chartering the buses that we did last year. So the answer is, you know, we hope to remain neutral, but with some of the specifics, um, you know, it's, it's going to be interesting. And then that's not to mention, I think, you know, the conversation about the playoffs is a big one. And I think a lot of lower division soccer teams will be, on, will be honest with you that making the playoffs is, is an added increase. You know, it's a, it's an expense. Uh, we, we were, just lucky enough to get on the attention of some, some big names last year to help us fundraise to, to afford that. Um, but that, that is always a concern is, you know, you think going into the year, you obviously have new Orleans set to make a run, um, probably sitting in there at the number one seed if we make the playoffs. So now you're looking at if we make the playoffs with them, who knows if you're making two trips to new Orleans in one year. So we are trying to focus on that and, and, like you said, forecast out some costs, but we are um, pretty hopeful that we'll be able to, to, to make everything just like it was last year. Uh, last question here, as you, you're going into your second year, you've, you've, you've gone to the uh, um, annual owners uh, meeting, the, op- the, the NPSL meeting that was in Nashville. Um, you've, already had these preliminary conversations you have you know an idea a pretty good healthy idea of what's to come uh this season with the npsl i want to zoom out for a moment and uh, go beyond just you know local tallahassee um you know gcpl transition to npsl conversation for this last question and really get to the you know a, a lower division soccer um question for you as we wrap up today looking at lower division soccer in america what are some things the federation could do to help clubs like yours be more sustainable and uh, quite frankly uh, in a better position to, to grow um, not just be around, but grow on an annual basis. What can the Federation do to help you guys achieve your mission, even at the lowest levels of the game? Yeah. You know, it's, it's funny because I didn't know where you were going with this question, but I knew no matter what, my answer was going to be about the Federation. So I'm glad that you were specific about it because I haven't been shy. And and I fully believe that the Federation needs to offer a matching grant program for lower division soccer teams. You know, they are flush with, with cash. Uh, it, w- it would be a, in their standards, maybe a minimal, even if you did a $500,000 or a million dollar countrywide grant program to offer I mean, $5,000 or $10,000 matching grant programs for, say, three years for lower division soccer. It, it would change the face of, of lower division soccer in this country. Because honestly, you know, you've got teams running in lower division soccer, let's say from thirty dollars to $80,000 a year, maybe 100000 depending on where you are. Um, and if you get a matching grant of 10000 that turns into twenty. you know, that, that's, that's legitimate changing um, finances to start teams all around this country. And obviously you can set up requirements and, 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 you know, you can leave it up to them to figure out how that works. But I really think it's, it's an easy thing to do. And it's on both the men and the women's side, you know, this, this needs to be, uh, something taken on by the Federation to, to grow the game in this country. And, and I think that the money's there. And, and I think there are people in every city, as you already see between, NPSL, USL2, U, um, sorry, you know, the UPSL, Gulf Coast, there are, there are clubs around this country that, that would be uh, helped by that right there. I love your answer. I love the fact you had an answer. Um, and, and I think that is um, 
a really, really good one. And you're right. I mean, if you're looking at a budget of anywhere between fifty to $100,000 to operate an amateur team and you're able to inject $20,000, that is a significant, I mean, that's a, on the, on the lower operating side of the ledger that, that could be a 40 percent bump in in operating money on the high end it could be a 20 percent bump in in the uh operating budget but still give that in either way it makes a big impact on the operations of a club so um you know, I, I think these are the kind of ideas and solutions. Unfortunately, the Federation uh, it, it has not been either considering or getting the right people around the table to uh, to offer up. But, but I think you are on to something there in terms of growing the game, uh, especially at the grassroots level. If people want to uh, to follow Tallahassee, they want to they want to follow you. They want to keep in touch. Maybe they want to pick your brain about even more, you know, specific questions uh, that would be specific to their context and maybe specific to your context that you might could help them out with in terms of advice. How could they get in touch with you uh, through social media? Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure like you always have it posted on your stuff, but my personal is at Chris Petley on Twitter. Uh, all of our soccer uh, team info is at TLH soccer club. We're on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, you can email me at chris at tlhsoccerclub.com, and that is our website as well, tlhsoccerclub.com. Well, Chris, as always, uh, thank you for uh, coming on the show. Look forward to having you back on when it gets a little bit closer to uh, season kickoff. Hope you have a Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, and uh, best wishes as uh, you get ready to enter 2020 uh, in year two of the Tallahassee uh, Soccer Club uh, entering the NPSL. So uh, best of luck as uh, you guys get uh, revving up there for uh, for the second season. Um Look, look forward to, to following your progress as a club. Uh, thanks for joining the show. Awesome. Thanks for having us on. Have a great holiday season. Talk soon. Thanks. You too. That is Chris Petley of the Tallahassee Soccer Club. If you haven't already, follow them on social media. Um, they, they are a club that came into year one because um, – having success on the field as well as in the the game day environment attendance etc they learned lessons from people around the country and worked really 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 hard and i can't leave that out um, to get the success that they were able to uh, achieve and you could learn a lot from them reach out to to chris um, and and pick his brain he is uh, always willing to help out any way he can um, as others have done for them so uh, thanks to chris for joining the show our sponsor this half hour is charity water you can learn more about charity water at charitywater.org they provide clean drinking water to people all over the world you can be a part of that story this holiday holiday season at charitywater.org. We'll be right back after this. No one, no man, no woman, no child should ever have to drink green water with bugs, with algae, with disease in it. Bad water and a lack of toilets kills more people than all the wars in the world. We know how to bring clean drinking water right now to every single person on earth. And when you can bring water into communities, it truly transforms them. It changes everything. You could know that you'd made a difference. You could know that you had truly impacted the life of a family, of a community, of a region. There was either clean water or there wasn't. We believe in a world where every single person has clean and safe water to drink, and we will continue fighting until that happens. I'd like to thank Chris for uh, joining the show today, and... um sharing his thoughts about the Tallahassee Soccer Club. 
You can watch the show as always on facebook.com forward slash WRKMN at danielworkman.com. Catch me on Twitter or Instagram at Daniel Workman. Thanks for watching. We always appreciate it. We'll see you again tomorrow.